0: Welcome to the Being Known podcast with my friend
1: Dr. Kurt Thompson and my friend Pepper Sweeney.
0: We are here to discover and explore what it means to be truly known. Hey, Kurt. Hey, Pep. Good to see you. I'm sure it is good to see me. It's good to see. You. It's good to see you as well. Always good to see you. You know, we are here in uh, episode seven of season six of the Being Known podcast. And this episode is titled, Where Are You and Where Are You Going? Where Are You and Where Are You Going? It's a state of domain of mind. Um, mm-hmm. I'm excited about today's episode. Let's just jump right in.
1: So we've been tracking over the course of this season of the beauty of wisdom. We've been tracking on wisdom and seeing like, what, what is that? How do, we, how do we become people of wisdom? And as a podcast that has really worked to bring together these uh, fields of neuroscience and spiritual formation, this notion of being known, this notion of creating and curating beauty and goodness. It's it's easy, I think, for us to somehow think that wisdom, like, oh, that's like an add-on. It's this thing that we, we know is important, but what's it got to do with neuroscience? And what's it got to do with, I mean, with neuroscience, with interpersonal neurobiology, and in particular with a thing that we, will, we call states of mind, yeah. this notion of how we tend to change from moment to moment. We tend to change from state to state to state throughout the course of our day, throughout the course of our lives and are often not aware that we're doing this. And as such uh, though, we, we, we come to discover that when we pay more attention to this question of where am I in my state of mind, and where am I going next in the next two seconds, in the next five minutes, where am I going next, where am I and where am I going, Uh, are important questions that get us closer to the beauty of wisdom and that paying attention to the brain's states of mind can be an effective tool for helping us get there. And so with that before us, we'll just remind our, remind our audience that uh, and we've, we've talked about this in other episodes, that we are people, like other animals, we are people who live in the course of our day in the context of what we call states of mind. Now, we, we've we've heard this, Billy Joel sings of this, and we, we talk about it colloquially. We, we're like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not in a very good state of mind. And, and we think that we're just using metaphor, but the reality is that our brains actually enter into different stable neural patterns of firing that are to be equated with this thing called a state of mind. And so there in, in, in the field of fields of neuroscience, there are,, you know, there's a kind of a technical way that we define this thing called a state of, what is that? What is a state of mind? And we, we like to describe it. This is kind of a, a bit of a long-winded thing, but we say it's a firing pattern. Of neurons so our neurons if i'm listening to you tell me a funny story i am i am in inti- like my neurons are primed for a particular pattern that they're going to be in if i'm listening to someone give me instructions about how to fix a faucet that's a whole different set of neurons and if it were me like i i, I would need far more neurons than <laughs> i have You know, it makes me think,
0: you know, you and Amy sometimes will talk about the pause. You'll say, I don't know whether something that I say is, is whether I'm going to come out with something funny or whether it's going to be serious. So I'm sitting here thinking your mind, you're in a state of mind and it's kind of in flux. You aren't quite, you aren't quite sure like like what state to be in. I hadn't thought (laughs) of it that way.
1: right. Yeah. Yeah. And so now I, and, and now that you've said that, I'm not sure that this is good that you know this or not, <laughs> I mean, because perfect, you're just kind of like, you're just kind like, of like, you know, you know, being yourself, doing your thing. And now I'm thinking like, oh, now I can do this on per. I can exploit this even, That's I can right. exploit this to the max with That's them. That's right. But we're going to get back to that. We're going to get back to that whole thing about the pause in, in just, a, in just a bit when it comes to like talking about transitions from one state to another. But we have these firing patterns of neurons that we like to say they remain stable and predictable over time. Now that's, I don't mean just mean again, kind of like how a common way of, I mean like kind of scientifically, if we're measuring that a pattern of neurons will continue to fire predictably and and by stable, uh, we don't mean that that's always enjoyable, right? If I'm, if I'm in a state of fear, and the thing that is evoking my fear remains near me. That pattern will be sta- by stable. We mean it remains present and continually active. It's not going off and going in a different direction or another. So just because it's stable doesn't mean that it's always pleasant. Okay. Right. So if you know, it's it's kind of like if your house is on fire. The fire is actually stable if it is continuing to burn at the same rate. Now that doesn't that's not a good thing. Right. But if that fire then starts to jump to the neighbor's house and the next neighbor's house, then it's unstable in a bad way. Technically, from a scientific standpoint, we would say that if the fire department gets there and starts to put it out quickly, now it's also unstable, the fire itself is unstable in that it's not able to maintain itself. So that whole notion of being stable and predictable, we know that, oh, given the circumstances, it's likely that 10 seconds from now or five minutes from now, I can predict we're still going to be in this state of mind with respect to encounters in the environment. So here are just a couple of, of examples that are easy, to, easy for us to think about. So if I go to work every morning, my alarm gets, goes off, I get up, I, I turn the alarm off, I crawl out of bed, I go do what I'm gonna do routinely. I get in the shower, I get breakfast. A lot of that can happen from the moment that your alarm goes off. Many of us, we, we can think that, oh, we're kind of moving rather automatically through our morning. Now, it doesn't mean that like it's all rote But like I move pretty much with that same pattern. And if we were to track the firing patterns that your brain both fires and that from moment to moment is anticipating is going to happen next, your brain is primed to be in a particular pattern, a particular state of mind. I'm going to get up and go to my shower, breakfast, uh, get in the car, go to work that'll be a very different pattern that is firing in your brain because the things I'm imagining and thinking about and so forth that are all on the right half of my brain and the language is my left half of my brain, that's very different than if on Saturday morning I'm going to get up and go play tennis. The alarm still may go off or it may not go off because I'm not playing tennis until 10. So I wake up and it's a completely different way of getting out of bed. My mind is in a different pattern of firing, both stable. But then we would say there are also what we would call states within states, and we—if we, if our listeners can think about—if uh, you know what I mean when I say the Russian nesting dolls. Now, if you can pronounce this word, I—I I don't know—I don't know how to pronounce it. I—that's—that's I, that's how it's spelled, spelled, but that's the English spelling. Matryoshka. Um. I, I don't know. M a t r y o s h k a Okay, so so to,
0: with a, to get a Russian accent, you put it in the back of your throat. Yeah, that, you, wait, so, wait, wait. Especially yeah. So it's yeah, so it's go. so so it's like this like one, two, three, four, five. You put it in the back throat. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. You put put it back back in back in the so
1: matryshka, Do. Dude. That's killing it. There it is. Dude, like you should be an actor. All right, well, yeah. <laughs> Tell it to Hollywood. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's, no, seriously, that's, that's, that's really good. Wait, wait. You, so okay, I the whole one, two, three, four, yeah, five. So yeah, I had, th- so th-
0: a, a dialect coach, I had to play uh, – I did a play where I was played a Russian guy, and I had not done really a lot of accents, and, and um, they brought this guy in to work with me. And that's one of the tricks that he taught me. And it was just easy for me to say one, two, three, four, five. From the front of my mouth, like I always talk, uh-huh. and then to put it uh-huh. back in the back. One, two, three, four, five. You put it one, two, three, back in there.
1: One, two, one, two, yeah. three, four. Wow, riveting. Okay. Yeah. All right. No, 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 no. Like, so. Okay. Wait. We're, before we get to the Russian dolls, yes. The Russian nesting dolls. Well, yes. I, I just want. I want to say something right now. Yeah. Okay. So this. The, the, okay. This reminds me. Oh gosh, I I'm, I'm gonna say it now because I because I I, cause I, we, I might want to talk about it later, but it, but it's I I'll forget about it. You are Pepper Sweeney, but when, you know, we, we've told this story, you know, more than once here, cause I just, I just love it. But the, but the story of your being the grocery delivery boy, mm-hmm. you have to do the work of imagining not just lines. Oh, these are the lines that the delivery boy delivers when he goes onto the stage to play. Okay. I know you might not want to do this. Like, okay, so quickly tell, a story.
0: <laughs> tell the yeah, story. Yeah, don't know. Yeah. yeah. Well, I will say, I, well, i want to say this first is, is yeah. the interesting thing is, is when you show up to that first day of rehearsal, the line should be done already. Like you should have the lines. Uh, like that's, yeah, that's not the work. I mean, it's work, yeah. but it's not the work. Right. I mean, you, you have to get rid of that so that you can start to really do the work, all the imagination work. Um, you know, all of that. I, th- I think I've said once before, my my teacher, Charles Nelson Riley, said that the author is responsible for the black on the page, but the actor is responsible for the white between the words, right? Oh, my gosh. So the story that Kurt is is talking about, and I have told it several times on this podcast, but there's— I we, love it every We time. do know that we have new listeners every week, um, was when I was a young actor and I was an apprentice at uh, Burt Reynolds Theater in Jupiter, Florida— I was doing a play. I had a small role in a play. play was called And Miss Reardon Drinks a Little. And it was, uh, I played a grocery store clerk, a grocery store delivery boy who comes in to a scene, delivers the groceries, has a few lines, sets them on the counter, and and then leaves. It's a, not a real long scene. It's not, and, and having this smaller role in this play afforded me with much more time to do much more imagination work. Mm. And this was when I was first sort of learning about this imagination work. Mm-hmm. I was just coming to understand it. And this really, it, it gave me, it, it been, it been, I benefited a lot from having the time to be able to do it because, mm. um, so, so I would sit every night before I would go before my entrance on stage and I would go through, I would, in my mind, I would be at the store I w- I knew what aisle the groceries were on. I knew what the grocery list was mm. and I hit, you know, mm-hmm. I if you if you ever watch a TV show or something and somebody walks in with groceries and you can tell the bags empty and there's just like some fake stuff it just drives me crazy. That kind of stuff mm. drives mm. me nuts. Anyway, so so you know, I, I I load the bag, the prop and everything and and in um, your mind in my mind are you, are, which I yeah. did I I do myself every night anyway in reality but I'm I'm sitting there right before I go on and I'm going through this process of of going through the store and getting the groceries and then you know, how I get to the apartment building and, and get to the apartment building and I hit the elevator button, I go up the elevator, I come down the hall, I go knock on the door, I go in and have the scene come out and leave. Well, the one particular night, I was sitting there going through this exercise where I was doing all the things, I'm knowing the sights, the sounds, the smells, everything, hmm. um, bringing back, conjuring back things of when I was in New York City and because that's where the play took place and, and like, literally, like, bringing back sensory memory of things that I had experienced there mm-hmm. in the streets and mm-hmm. all this. And so so this particular night, for whatever reason, I decided to... That the, 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 I pushed the elevator button and the elevator didn't come.
1: Elevator, in your imagination, in my that's imagination. the way it's going to work out. Yeah. I mean, elevator, oh, my gosh. Elevator didn't yeah, Right, come. right, right.
0: So I got to go to the... Find the stairs, go up the stairs, <laughs> and then go and... Knock on the door and go in and do the scene, and I, I, I brought all of that with me on stage, but I didn't come in going, oh God, oh God, you know, nothing like that. You know, I just I had those thoughts and everything in my mind. And I come out and I finish the scene, and I come out, and the director was in the house watching the play that night, and she came to me afterwards and she said, "What happened to the elevator?"
1: Dude, every time you tell this right? story, I get chills. I, I I like I like my hair standing up like
0: it and to me so at that moment was so important to me because it taught me so many things it, that, like the importance of all this all this work but um, it also it freaked me out that she knew <laughs> that she knew that Dude, I like I that, I, <laughs> that I took the stairs instead of the elevator and she said you know what she said in her understanding of it at the time she just said well thought has energy. And the thought that you, mm-hmm. the, you came on stage with these thoughts and we felt that energy, which, mm-hmm. you know, I find out years later from you is not too far from the truth. Right. And, um, and so, yeah, but it's, it's, it, it's much more than, than just memorizing your lines because I could have had that done day one and then just kicked back and not done any of the rest of this work. Right. And,
1: right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think it is a powerful testimony to the very thing that we're talking about because you— I'm just going to name this, and we're going to go back to finishing up our Russian nesting dolls for just a second, and and, we'll come, and then we're going to come back to this, and that is this whole notion of the degree to which we ha- we can't we are in states of mind all the time. The question is, to what degree are we paying attention, and then how do we direct our attention to be in particular states of mind? Which is exactly what you're describing that you did. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 to and and to testify to the fact that when 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 we choose to have states of mind, like your director, like she's not she's not in the she's she's not even the actors that are interacting with you on the stage. Right, she's watching this from the house, and something between you and where she sits in the house Crazy. is affecting something. Yeah, this is not just because she's just smart. Right, and I think that this again right off the bat reminds us that wisdom is not this abstract thing. Wisdom is a thing that is felt in the room because this is the presence of the Spirit of God in the material world as it manifests through the physics of nonverbal cues, of the energy that she and that you are talking about, and that we actually have far more leverage in our life to be people of beauty and goodness and wisdom than we give ourselves credit for, often because we're actually not paying attention to what we could be paying attention to. And we aren't because our attention hasn't been drawn to ourselves in helpful ways, relationally through secure attachment. So, I mean, someone along the line was investing in you in such a way and inviting you to imagine these kinds of things, Mm -hmm. such that your decision to shift your state of mind made a difference.
0: Yeah.
1: It's a very, very big deal. Mm. Um, this, uh, okay. Can you say it one more time? The Russian name? I have to look up,
0: look at my notes
1: Wait, I gotta get, I gotta get, I gotta get it back there. Yeah. Again. Yeah. 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 Ontem,
0: yeah okay. okay. Matryoshka
1: doll. Right. Okay. That's, that's just, that's just fascinating and beautiful. you you, you no, no, I was just
0: looking to make sure I got it right.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think I think our, our audience, you might be aware of like these Russian nesting dolls, yeah. a small doll that sits in a small, in a bigger one and a bigger one, bigger there and everybody, six or eight or 12 of them, however many there are. But this notion of a state of mind, like I can have the state of mind, I think that we know, yeah, we get it, the difference between, you know, the state of mind I enter in when I'm going to work versus when I go to play tennis. But there are larger states of mind that we have. So I go off to work in the morning and when I'm at the office, there is an overarching state of mind that I have for the eight to ten hours that I'm there. But within that larger dome, that state of mind of I'm at work, is another state of set of states of mind that happen with each hour with each patient that I have. And so I have a different state of mind with my nine o'clock patient than with my ten, and so forth and mm-hmm. so on. And then when we have staff meeting, these are these are different. But even within each hour with each patient, we have moments where we have different states of mind that we enter into, like the state of mind of where I'm really empathic, and then there's the state of mind in which I'm like trying to work hard not to fall asleep, or I'm you know or I'm irritated or all, all the different things that are happening, recognizing that that state of mind isn't just within me, it is between me and the other person as well. Mm. And the real question is, oh, am I, am, I like, am, I, am I aware that this is the state of mind that I'm entering into? So we can find ourselves across this span. And what we then see that is most important about these different states of mind is how it is that we transition from state to state to state to state. To state. If I decide at the end of the day, I've said this here before and other other places, right? If I, at the end of the day, if I forget when I go home that I'm now not at all at the office, I can behave as if I am at the office and that doesn't always serve me well.
0: Trust me. I mean, there there was a time, uh, you know, years ago that I would literally sit in the driveway to have a transition. Right. You know, to have a transition before I go in the house because that guy is not the guy that needs to be Coming into a house full of small kids that my wife's been taking care of all day. You know? Right. <laughs> the guy who's telling right. people what to do. And yeah. <laughs> it should be a different a different entrance. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna I sat I there long enough to fill that bag with groceries sat
1: down, <laughs> the transition here. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So so we notice then that part of wisdom is attuning to the transitions. Mm. And these changes in the states of mind that I can enter into. And we can enter into these states of mind intentionally and consciously. So, like, for you to decide, I'm going to pause in my driveway before I go in the house. And I'm going to envision going into the kitchen. And I'm going to, like, I'm going to have to gear up for my next job, for my other other full-time job. And then, but we also find that sometimes these transitions are involuntary. I find myself suddenly irritated, and before I know it, I got stuff coming out of my mouth. Yeah, that is not going to serve me or the other person well.
0: When words are coming out of your mouth and you don't know what they are until you actually hear them,
1: <laughs> I didn't know I was going to say that. How did that? How did that escape? Oh my gosh! And why is it? Why is it that there are so many times that, like, I'm thinking, no, don't say that, don't say that, and then the moment I start to say it. It's as if something possesses me, and instead of stopping, the words themselves feel like no. I got to get out of his mouth as fast as I possibly can before he has the chance to stop me. I mean, why do I do that, right? And so we can have these involuntary transitions that are both conscious and non-conscious. My non-conscious one, like we'll, we'll wrap up. We'll wrap up this and will be done and I'm gonna, there's gonna be a transition, for instance, there's gonna be a transition, like this will be a small one, but there'll be a transition between our conversation and when Amy joins us. And there'll be another transition between that and when we wrap things up and I then go get lunch. Those are those are small transitions. And I'm not thinking to myself, oh, now I'm gonna transition and go get lunch. We, we just kind of do. It's still willful, but it's not really all that conscious. It's involuntary in the sense that I'm kind of automatically doing it voluntary in the sense that I'm still willfully doing it. But the question is always to what degree are the elements of the way that I don't wisely live in the world tend to be in charge of these transitional periods, whether they're large block periods, I'm coming home from work and now I'm at home. Mm-hmm. Or there are these micro moments where I'm in the middle of a conversation with a patient and before you know it, like I'm saying something that is not going to be helpful while knowing they're still going to pay me at the end of the hour, which feels like not the best, right? Just right. speaking for all therapists out there. But then we also recognize that we have these, this, this recognizing that no small part of what it means for us to grow in wisdom has everything to do, this this is has everything to do with the stress of transition from state to state to state. My capacity to pause and be aware that I'm about to transition to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing.
0: It reminds me, I, I used to have a, I have an Apple watch and I used to have all these notifications on it for work and I'd be in a conversation with Nell, my wife, and I'd I'm here, this is my state of mind, and all of a sudden this thing goes off, and I'm gone, and I'm no longer here. And then she's gone because, (laughs) you know, because I just left the building. So I had to change that. I had to stop that from happening anymore.
1: I mean, okay, perfect example. I mean, how many of us, you know, we're were doing any number of things. We go to lunch with a friend, and the friend puts their phone down on the table. And the notifications come, and you see the friend turn look like I hate
0: that. Well, and you have talked about we've talked about this. I think it was in we first discovered it in Hamlet's Blackberry that book where if if you have your phone on the table between you and somebody you're having a conversation that neurologically things are changed in your brain because this thing is still this thing can capture your attention at any moment,
1: right? Is right. that yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And it gets, it gets on, you know, there's, there's research now that we, we've mentioned this as well too, where newborns, infants, toddlers, attachment patterns are shaped by a parent's phone being in the room. Parents don't even have to be on their phone. The phone can be in the room and the parent is aware that there is a part of them that is anticipating, waiting for primed to look for the phone and that part of them is not attuned to the child, and the child senses this, this divided attention. Crazy. Yeah, and so recognizing that this, the growth for us requires our capacity to attune in the present moment, it does require effort. It requires work in that sense, not work that is necessary, but, 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 You know, I love being entertained by my phone. I love something else doing the work that can draw my attention to it rather than me having to do the work. I mean, that story that you tell about the grocery delivery boy, like it requires a ton of work on your part with intention doing the thoughtful, imaginative work of what it means to be a grocery delivery boy. It's not going to be done for you. We also know that this kind of work, though, is best navigated in community, and by that we mean that if we are all working together to be mindful of our states of mind together, then we benefit from this practice and process of having that taking place for us. If I know that other people are doing this work together with us, which is why as we talk in here about being known, If I'm going to be in a community in which the state of mind that I'm in can transition, that we can really attune to that, pay attention to that, name that together, I become more effectively able to be aware of it. While at the same time, eventually, it is my job and my job alone to regulate my particular state of mind. I can't just say, well, you all out there are going to have to do whatever you need to do in order for me to be okay. This is, this is why culturally we're in a rather strange moment where the whole notion of I don't feel safe is the kind of phrase, I don't feel safe, which implies that I'm ultimately not responsible for my state of mind. I'm requiring the rest of the world to bend to my will. That's different than saying, I'm afraid, and I need to do something about my fear, as opposed to, I don't feel safe relative to the circumstances in the environment. Now, this doesn't mean that safety is unimportant. Safety is hugely important, but even the way that we language our description of the state of mind that we are in is such that it becomes easy for us to imagine that the rest of the world is utterly responsible for ensuring that I am comfortable and confident in my skin
0: had a pastor that used to say, if somebody pushes your buttons, it's your job to get rid of the button.
1: Because <laughs> <laughs> it's your button. Right. Right. And granted, granted, you know, if, 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 if the button they're pushing is, the, is my nose right. and they're hitting well, me with a frying pan, right? Right. We're talking about that. But, but I mean, we are in our cultural moment. That's not mostly what we're talking about anymore. And so eventually I have to, I have to manage my buttons. I have to be responsible. like, how am I going to, what am I going to do about that? And which then gets us to this whole notion of the role that trauma and shame play. One of the things that trauma and shame do is it disrupts our ability to transition between States in a way that is regulated. If I have not addressed my unfinished business of shame and the disruption of trauma in my own life, my transitional state, my transition from state to state, is going to be difficult for me to navigate, especially when those states come to me in unexpected form. When we find ourselves, uh, you know, as parents, when we find ourselves dealing with a child who's now, like, kind of they've devolved into a tantrum for reasons that I don't understand. I don't really get that. Why, Why is that the case? Or... With friendships, or I mean, I, we we often you know when we think about those of us who are who are leaders, like who who are responsible for systems, whether you're a church leader or you're a business leader, you're a teacher, uh, you're an administrator. Uh, as we've said here before, that every uh, there's no system in the world that does not model itself off the family, none. And that means that whether you're in a school or whether you're in a company or you're in, in the academy or you're in a church, wherever, a business, somebody is going to be the parent and somebody is going to be the firstborn and the secondborn and the thirdborn and so forth and so on. And somebody has to be in charge. And the way, it's not just is someone going to be in charge, but in what way will they be? And the degree to which they are able to be aware of not just their own state, but how their states are being affected by the states of other people is going to like determine to a large extent like how the family is actually going to operate in the world. And trauma tends to disrupt my capacity to do that. It disrupts our ability to live in a world of probabilities. I I'm not always able to predict the probabilities of things happening in a way. So, I might be in a situation in which all it takes is a small stimulus to have me being worried that like a really catastrophic outcome is about to take place. I can't, with, with good predictability, I, I can't predict what the probability is of are going to be here because of my own unfinished business, for example. And then this then trends my mind increasingly in the direction of my need for certainty. I, I have to know that I know that I know how this is going to turn out. And this is where uh, we we come to discover that If I have to be certain, the more things I have to be certain about so that I can absolutely control for the transition from one state to another, that means I'm going to be in a greater state of isolation. Because if I'm going to be connected to you, like truly, I'm going to be connected. If I'm going to be connected to real people, I'm going to be connected to people who ultimately I can't predict all the time. And they're going to do things that are not according to the way I want them to be done. And by that, I don't just mean like what TV show we're going to watch. I mean, you know, something else is bothering them and I say something and they speak irritably to me and like it upsets me and like I, I don't have the capacity to pause and transition into this collaborative state of mind with them and be curious about that. Instead, I need certainty that this will not happen and so I leave the room and leave the house and get in the car, all, all these kinds of things that like lead to me being more functionally isolated. And it also then just reinforces and empowers the role that shame plays in my life. If we are going to be people of wisdom, then we have to be people who do a number of things. If we're gonna enhance the intentionality with how we transition from state to state, Wisdom is about slowing our pace. Wisdom is a thing that we acquire over many, many years. I don't acquire it by cramming for a test, even if I get a, even if I get an A on the test. That's not wisdom. And this is difficult because I want to have all my T's crossed and I's dotted immediately. Right. It requires my practicing, being receptive to love. That's how I slow my pace. To anticipate the possibility that if we're in the middle of working out a rupture, that we can do that. And it might take 30 minutes for us to do that. I want to get rid of this feeling that happened in the middle of this transition that I didn't expect to have happen. I want to get rid of it right away. Now I'm going to have to slow my pace. But it is in slowing my pace that I also open the door eventually to being receptive to love being receptive to the, note, to the experience that even in this rupture, for instance, I can be loved. I can have that experience. And that requires co-regulation with other folks. And so we see wisdom, again, is not just a thing, this abstract thing. It's not just more information. It is about practicing the co-regulatory process of transitioning from one state to another in ways that allow me to do so purposefully, mindfully. This is, we do this imperfectly. But again, I think it's helpful to remember this notion that when we are keeping an eye on the texts of scripture, this ancient Jewish messianic meditative wisdom literature, all each, each of those six words, is a testimony to the length of time that it takes for us to meditate on this, to be, to acquire this over time and that our stories of wisdom are emerging over time. We're practicing this. Those who will hear this, this episode are going to, Oh, this is great. I'm going to like, just think about this and go back and maybe listen to a couple other episodes that we've done that where we talk about transitions in states of mind and, and like, you know, uh, in somewhere in the next, like, 36 to 72 hours, I'll have this figured out. No, we're, what we're really doing here is we're saying, oh, here is another way for us to practice being known, uh, that we will, we, we will practice this imperfectly, but we will do it with, we will do it faithfully over the course of our lifetime, because we're practicing for heaven, and we do that by repeating the work of curiosity, of receptivity, and of taking risks, being vulnerable. We talk about practicing being agents of and looking for, being seen, soothed, safe, secure. We talk about the tripod of awareness, that I want to be open, observant, and objective. And at the very end, we recognize that in order for me to transition well from one state to another, whether it's a big state coming home from work and moving into my home, or if it's a state in the middle of a conversation, that I'm better able over time to make those transitions effectively to the degree, as I like to say, that, to the degree that we attach ourselves to objects that have greater mass than we do.
0: So, Kurt, do you remember when you were at Hope Hills Camp
1: and they had the thing with
0: the white pom-poms?
1: Dude, oh my gosh. You know, the, all of the volunteers line up. They, they line the side of the road, both sides of the road. And for every family that comes in, there's all this cheering, waving of pom-poms, signs, balloons, you name it. It's, I mean, the, the, the kids that are coming in have never really had anything like this. You
0: know, to me, that's just a picture of being seen and, and allowing them to feel known in that moment. Yeah. I want to share a story about how this impacted one dad. It's, he he wrote this into Hope Hill's Camp after, just after attending the Hope Heels Camp. We have a five-year-old nonverbal son on the autism spectrum. In the world of disability, it's the little things that are the big things. The coffee was awesome. The community and stories you, that you're helping to bring together are so, so needed. But it was the line of volunteers with white pom-poms that has gotten me choked up about a half a dozen times in the last couple hours. Hmm. My sweet baby boy is five. He is the joy of our lives, and he has never been invited to a birthday party. Hmm. He has never kicked a soccer ball the wrong way on the field and been cheered for it. Hmm. We have barely even had birthday parties for him the last couple of years. But a line of strangers with pom-poms tonight It took everything in me to hold it together. All I could do was look down at him as we walked through that line and try to avoid being a sobbing mess. Mm -hmm. For the rest of my life, it will be a moment I treasure.
1: You know, Pep, that's just an amazingly beautiful story. And if you didn't know it already, Hope Heals Camp is a week-long retreat and year-round community offering rest, resources, and relationships to families experiencing disability. And we're very excited to be sponsoring five families to camp this summer.
0: With your help, your tax-deductible donation will go directly to scholarshipping these families. So you can click the link in the show notes or go to hopeheals.com forward slash BKP. That's H-O-P-E-H-E-A-L-S dot com forward slash BKP and donate. Any amount is helpful.
1: And together, we can help make a big difference. I tell this story of how a patient who, uh, he's, he's a, he was a young father, and he had this eight-year-old boy who was just, he was just really into his little, little model planes that he had, airplanes. And this kid would, like every night, he would just, he would be flying them around his room. And uh, this guy's wife, when I, you know, the kids are like, they're kind of all over the place, and he wants to get, him, he wants to get his kid, she, like, can we get the kids to bed? It's time, they need me to get to bed. And uh, you know, so she says to him, go, you go in and you know, take care of Johnny and get, get him to bed? And of course she's thinking like, get him to bed. And they both, they tell me this story later. She's like, I walked down the hall and there is, and, and, and there's my husband in, in the bedroom, flying planes <laughs> with our son. I'm like, this is not getting to bed. But what was dad doing? Dad, who's like six feet tall, 190 pounds, he's like a large object. And what is he doing? He is connecting with his son. And what he started to do was he would, he was flying the planes and then the plane would fly slower and slower and slower. And what he was doing was helping his child transition Mm -hmm. from one state of mind to the state of going to bed, but doing it mindfully. Mm -hmm. He's inviting that child to be attached, literally, to a larger object than him. When we attach ourselves and immerse ourselves to the scriptures and to a community that is larger than us but has our interest in mind, it becomes the inertial force that helps guide the way in which we transition from state to state to state. We move at the pace of the community or at the pace of scripture. I think about... You know, I, I I I've been thinking about this recently, just a lot, I'm just paying attention to this. Like, I've had the opportunity, I, I'm, you know, and you you too, Pepper, you you fly. There are periods, seasons of life where you're flying quite a bit, back and forth across the country, and you know, you get in this plane, and what's really interesting to me is that the bigger the plane is, right? You you if I'm in a like a little regional jet, that thing is popping up and down, in and out, like you even if you can't sense the speed at which you're moving relative to the ground like you know you're moving from the slight you get in a wide body jet and you like if the wind if all the shades are pulled on the plane like you don't have any idea that you like once you get past like take off and you reach cruising altitude you don't even know you're moving right you don't know that your body is moving at 600 miles an hour because we are attaching ourselves to objects that are larger than us. Wisdom becomes a way for us to attach ourselves to a larger inertial body that enables us to move from state to state to state, transitioning in ways that are much more effectively regulated. And we've not talked this episode about the book of Proverbs, but for our artistic offering, we'd love for you to talk a little bit about that.
0: So we have talked about the Bible project here on the Being Known Podcast. Uh, we are big fans of the Bible Project, and in particular, what we would love for you to spend some time doing, and it's not a long time. it's uh, less than five minutes. If you go to the bible project, bibleproject.com and you the way I, I did it when I got there was there's a you can in the search bar, you can type in Proverbs, and the in the videos will, the video will come up. They have these beautifully animated Short, artistic, and great storytelling, and and all the things, and and uh, you will learn about Chokmah, uh on this uh, in this episode, which is Hebrew for wisdom, and it just it really brings the story to life. It really helps you to have a, a deeper understanding of the overall theme of the Book of Proverbs. Can't recommend it enough.
1: Hmm. And so compiled with that on top of that we would love for you to think about this for our application in the coming few weeks and again it's an invitation and it's an invitation for you to do something but also then to observe what you sense the changes for you in the course of it and that is that consider each day for the next two weeks reading the first nine chapters of proverbs just straight through just reading the first nine chapters of proverbs Read it attentively, not reading it as if like, oh my gosh, like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to learn something here or I'm studying for a test, but read it meditatively. Take your time, read it through, but each day, straight through at one sitting. Not just, oh, I'll read two chapters here and three chapters later, just at one at one sitting. And then, after you've done that for two weeks, I want you to take chapters eight and nine daily for two weeks. Just read those two chapters. And pay attention to what you find yourself paying attention to over the course of that whole month. Not just what are you paying attention to in the scripture that you're reading. How do you notice that what you're reading is starting to work its way into your thinking, into your feeling? What are the questions that it raises? Notice to what degree you become increasingly aware of your states of mind and the manner in which you transition from one to the other as you are paying more attention, not just to wisdom generically, but to what wisdom bids you to do. Pay attention to how this changes in the way you interact with others and make moment-to-moment decisions, these state-of-mind transitions. In other words, you're paying attention to the way in which you are listening to and becoming wisdom, listening to and becoming the voice of God in the world, which is what we were made to do from the beginning. And this, I would say like if you have questions about, it, you know, feel free to re- revisit that video, that overview of mm-hmm. the book of Proverbs that Pepper mentioned. It's a great way to kind of anchor yourself in this application that we invite you to do as a way for you to become increasingly aware of how the becoming of wisdom is deeply connected to the neuroscience of our brains and how paying attention to all that gives us a greater sense of what it means to live in the world as God would have us live. Beautiful. Well said. Thank you, Kurt. This is a thanks, Pat. This is a great
0: episode, and we have to take a moment and transition. If you are We're watching on. us on YouTube, because uh, the chma <laughs> of Amy Cella is going to be joining us here on video in just a couple of seconds.
1: Love you, Kurt. Can you say Amy Cella? Can you say Amy Cella in Italian? <laughs>
0: no, I can't. <laughs> Saying Amy Cella is saying it in Italian, isn't it?
1: I think so. (laughs) (laughs) Amy Cella! This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Cella. Audio production and editing is by Keaton Sines. Video production and editing is by Mark Gould. Speaking of videos, each week we post the video version of every episode to our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube by going to youtube.com or your app and searching Being Known Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on social media at Pod. If you like this podcast, tell a friend. Tell all of your friends. And please like, rate, and review. Be well be now.